All right, here we are. Welcome back. Welcome back. Now, for for those, well, for okay, I got Go all ahead. ahead of myself. I got you all did, ahead did, of myself. You did. Hey, it's science in between. This is Ollie. That's Scott. This is Go Scott. Ahead. Okay. Well, I, I what I was going to say before I started introducing the episode is it's actually been a while since you and I have recorded. So even though right. for the for the listener it feels like it's only been a week, um, it's been a couple of weeks because I had travel and we had some some scheduling things. So. Um, so it's been a little while since we've had and one of these. Our lists. last episode was the dispositional throwdown. That's right. That was yeah. it was it was a uh, uh, which people may have viewed it as a bit of a, a confrontational uh, episode. But here we are. But here we know, are back uh, again. I, uh, Still friends. I I will say I've gotten a couple emails uh, regarding that, and yeah. you know I think some mistakes were made. Mistakes? <laughs> no, not mistakes. I think. <laughs> Well, we're not going to talk about that uh, no. today. We'll put that. There, okay, I want to we'll re- put a pin I, in that. At some point, I want to revisit the dispositions and assessment and all that. Okay, because I think there's some important conversations to to have there. Undoubtedly, yeah, round I, two, round whoop, two whoop, of the dis. Whoop, whoop, whoop. <laughs> Let's get ready to rumble. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to jump from the top turnbuckle. <laughs> right. Oh gosh. All right. That's not what this episode is about at no, all. It isn't yeah. at all. No. So, um, so yeah, so that all that to say, it's been a little while, uh, since we chatted, but we're, but we're ready to get back to it. Um, but not, we're no, no dispositional throwdown round two. No. And we're still friends, you know, even Mm, though, you know, I think you're mad at me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not mad at you. I'm mad at the world. What am I going to do, man? It's like, I want to, I want to fix the whole world and it just sometimes makes me angry. So, you know. I will or, say this is something that the folks may be interested in. Uh, you and I were, actually saw each other IRL, you know. In, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, about a week or two ago. Um, and we were wearing matching shirts and pants. Un, uh, like it was unplanned. And it was, yeah. it was weird. It was strange. I was like picking out my outfit that morning. I'm like going, okay, Scott's not going to wear this. And boom, right. you were wearing that. Yep. Damn it. There it was. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So right. yeah, we ha- we have issues, but <laughs> but our issues are not that we're angry with each other. So, no, that's not uh, one of them. <laughs> no, but what we are going to talk about today this is, is something something that came up um, has been coming up repeatedly for me because um, over the last five or six years, uh, we've been trying to really transform our teacher ed program to focus our science teacher ed program in secondary to focus on well all of them are doing it but we've been um, i can talk most about the stuff that we've been doing to focus on equity and diversity equity inclusion and belonging which you know this is a common thing this is not like a weird thing um so so we've been trying to do this work and and shout out to my uh doctoral students uh jd mccausland and jennifer jackson who have both done a lot of work and helped me learn a lot about this. Um, But they like, as we've been doing this and presenting this work in various venues, we, we always get pushback because um, we use some frameworks that really are about helping pre-service teachers understand their own positionality and specifically whiteness as a construct, as a social construct. Right. And, um, and people say, well, aren't you centering whiteness? Aren't you making this equity work about whiteness instead of about equity? Mm-hmm. And and 
so one of the contextual pieces to that is that, you know, in 18 or 19 years at Penn State, I've had literally a handful, like one handful or maybe a handful and a half of people of color in my courses. Like largely I teach white students. Right. Um, and that's a function of both Penn State being a PWI, a predominantly white institution, and also a, a function of the fact that uh, a lot of, especially people of color who ha who are good in science, which is what people need to do to be a teacher of science at Penn State, you have to have a 3.0, well, everywhere you have to have a 3.0 GPA. So you have to be pretty good at science. You have a lot of good options. And, uh, and especially for people of color, um, it's often not, you know, in the cards for them to take a job that is, is, you know, a low paying job. And there's lots of reasons, social reasons for that, that we're not going to talk about. Um, but what we are going to talk about a little bit is the fact that, you know, the teaching force is largely white. The pre-service new teachers that are coming out are still predominantly white. Um, though that's shifting as the demographics right. shift. Um, I think so some, like so even, we just even, need to think about how do we prepare white teachers to work in all sorts of kinds of schools? It's not just a Penn State problem. It's a it's an everywhere problem. I mean, the, sure. you know, uh, AACTE, the, one of the large teacher education uh, organizations, they're they're trying to diversify the workforce more. And, you know, and, and basically they're trying to, you know, a bunch of different efforts. One of the things that we have going on at Millersville is we have a, a mentoring program that we're working with some of the local schools to try to offer some mentoring. This is a work that a colleague uh, of mine, Miriam Whitmer, does. She, you know, mentors them through, you know, high school to try to get them to, you know, see education as a pathway for them, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, specifically students of color. And uh, this year it's like, you know, we're we're excited because we have four, you know, people of color who are graduating, you know, out of 100 in secondary yeah. education. And yeah. it's like we have one of them science. One of them is science yeah. uh, out of like, you know, I think we're graduating like 12 science teachers this year or 15 science teachers. Yeah. And, you know, so we have one person of color in that group. We have two people of color in English. Um, I had the pleasure of working with both of them this past fall. They were awesome. They were awesome, yeah. you know. And and I'm ex I think they both have jobs already, and it's like yeah. yes, you know, because they're going to be awesome teachers. Um, and but but that that's like really the impact of that. I mean, while they're going to be awesome teachers and they're going to um, do great things, it's still only four, right? Yeah. And so we four, have four percent, right? Like doing right. math, it's pretty right. easy if you've got a hundred people graduating, you got four. Yeah. Right. And and the the reality is if we're going to Talk about, you know, making uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging a thing, right? And then we're going to attend to it. Mm -hmm. That means that other people are going to have to pick up that work too, right? It just can't be yeah. the four of them, right? It's like, oh, hey, it's right. their work, right? It's all of our work. You know, right. it's it's your work. It's my work. And how do we do that? How do we be, you know, the people we are and, you know, promote diversity, in our classrooms, inclusion in our classrooms, you know? Right. And, and I think, you know, the other piece of that is, you know, in our methods courses, if, if I've got 15 or 20 students in my class and I have one student of color, like you, that's a very um, complicated situation because it can easily lead to tokenism where it's like, okay, we're going to have this one person of color speak for all people of color right. or all you know, if they're black, all black people, or if they're, you know, indigenous, all indigenous people, it's like, oh God, we can't do that. That is really 
really not where we are headed. So, um, so that's complicated too. So, uh, it, it's, yeah, these, I think, but, but I am astonished. And I think part of it is that I think, um, a lot of big research one institutions, well, many on the coasts anyway, are in big urban cities. Um, and as a result, do have much more diverse teaching forces, uh, both in the schools and in their class, in their teacher education classes. So when I've done pre- presentations, like the one that really sticks out, friend of the show, Brian Brown, I went yes. to, to do a seminar at, well, virtually over, over Zoom, did a seminar at Stanford. And that was the first time it, I really heard somebody say, like, hey, don't you think this is problematic that you're you're so much centering whiteness? And that's that was the first time I said out loud to a group like, yeah, but here's the thing. We don't have any students of color in our classroom. And I could just see the woman who asked the question, her face just like complete puzzlement. Like, what do you mean you don't have any teachers of color in your classes? And I was like, I live in essentially rural Pennsylvania. Right. And, and uh, you know, so... I think there's there we have to remind ourselves that there's huge parts of this country where um where they're they're very white still very white so the right. demographics of the country as a whole are changing but how the demographics of the whole country are changing is it very much in pockets and uh so there's a lot of places that are still very very white and a lot of my students both come from and will go back to those places yeah so so when you say centering whiteness Unpack that for me so that, yeah, you know, and unpack, unpack that for the audience too. So like, what does that look like in practice? And what does that look like? You know, as you say, you know, this is a construct you bring to your, the presentations and to the research you do. So right. what does, what does that look like in practice? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think basically what it means is that we have white students talk about what it means to be white and what what that means not only for them as humans and as individuals but what it means for them as teachers um and i think well there's a couple of things to say about that briefly one is that generally speaking white people don't talk about race so that's the first piece of this is just right. getting them talking about race even a little bit is often for them a new idea though i think that's changing more and more um for at across generations but but um but I think they're also well. It's also something that's not typically done in the teaching methods classes. So, so the way this usually happens is those conversations, if they're had, are had in you know the multicultural class or in in some other sort of separated class that does the DEIB or right, social like the, justice or whatever. Well, usually a foundations class, you know, someplace in... Sometimes, sometimes it's a standalone. Like when I went in my teacher ed program, there was a multicultural ed course that you took and it was just about that. Now that was a hundred years ago, which is why it was called multicultural ed. Right. Um, but now we have a social justice minor at Penn State that you can take multiple classes that are focused on this. Um but I think one of the arguments we've made is separating those things is is crazy. Never like, good. Yeah. Right. I mean, like you do the equity over there, you do the teaching over here. And then and I don't I'm not I'm not trying to say that's what happens in those classes, but but they can often be that way, that they're like theory about multiculturalism or about equity or about diversity or about social justice. And then this in the other place you do teaching and all we do is talk about how to teach science well. Right. Well, you can't do that. You have those things have to be integrated. They have to be inclusive, right? They have, you have to, yeah. 
because it's practice, right? And practice yeah. is social. And, you know, I mean, here we go again. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's like if you're interacting with other human beings, which is what teaching is, like you, you have to be thinking about equity in that context, not just over there where you're doing your, you know, your critical consciousness work, where you're learning what it means to be white and, and all that. But you have to be doing it when you're thinking about teaching. Yeah. So like, when you when you do this this unpacking you know of of race with white students like how conscious are they of like some of the systemic impacts or or you know on their ability because i mean looking around at in in a classroom at penn state and saying okay everyone's you know everyone in this room is white right the the i think there's sort of like this perception right that Okay, we belong in this room because whatever we've worked really hard, blah blah blah. Yeah. But there are if they even think about those things, for, they probably yes. did not, right? And they're probably like, like we're here, we're working, we're doing yeah. our thing, right? Um, but recognizing um, that the systems that got them there may also be the same systems that are, you know, keeping people out, right? right? Disadvantaging others, yeah, right. Um, maybe not as overt or as explicit. That's not the intention. Maybe, you know, I mean, maybe they are. I don't know. Um, I can't speak to that. But I, I will say that that the end result is that we get a classroom of white students. Yeah. Well, I mean, historically, yeah, these policies and practices and and institutions were designed that Absolutely. way. Absolutely. No so doubt. So we're living with that. Um, whether whether we intentionally continue that or not is up to us. But but histor- historically, that's the way all these institutions were designed. So um, yeah, but but you're like I don't know about you, but at, like at our institution, at least with you know graduate you know admissions and things, I, I'm like involved in admitting students. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. I'm not looking at like an application and saying, oh, this person's got, you know, a name that I don't recognize or, you know, this, this, pre- I'm not going to accept the students. That's it's just not how I, so there's like, I am not cool. consciously putting up barriers like that. And I don't think you are either. No, I, sure. But, of course. I don't, and I don't think, I, I think generally speaking, nobody's doing that. Right. Um, though there are, I mean, there are people who are, I, I don't want to imply that there's nobody racist in college admissions. I mean, yeah. that's crazy because of yeah. course there are people who are saying like, oh, this person's from Nigeria. We're not admitting them or they have a name I can't pronounce or is spelled funny. Um, I don't think it's, I mean, I don't think either of us think it's that. I mean, I think what, what we're understanding is that all of the structures that get to the person being able to even apply for college are so different and so um, organized to support certain groups of people and not others that it doesn't even show up. Like it doesn't, you can't read it in the transcript. It just is a thing that happens, right? They go to a school that has fewer resources, right? And as a result, they read, they read fewer books. And so they know less things about the things that they need to be able to fill out a college application when it asks you to compare you know, John Locke's vision of democracy with John Dewey's. I don't know. I made that up. But wow, that, yeah. Chat GPT. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. So um, so I think uh, but I think for teacher ed like this, this. Well, so one of the things that I've I've been learning again from J.D. and Jennifer over this time is is thinking about like when when I went through um, teacher ed, we had we did have some of these 
ideas, right? So Peggy McIntosh, probably most famously, this like unpacking the backpack of white privilege, right? Um, that's been around for a long time. But I think the problem is that just admitting that we have privilege and then stopping there is doesn't really do anybody any right. good. I mean, it, it lets white people feel a little cathartic because we can say like, yeah, I recognize that I'm a you know cisgender straight white man from an upper middle class background whose parents were well educated, and I have intergen I have multi generational wealth as a result of all of that, and and all that, and then I can say, boy, don't I feel better because I've just told everybody all my you know all my privilege. Sure. And now, now we can move on and go back to just the way the world is, which is it all works out really great for me and uh, too bad. I'm sorry. You know, so I think what the question is like, what do we do after that? How do, and that's what we're trying to think about in, in these contexts is how do we, how do we help students not just admit that they have privilege, but understand what that means and start to contribute to the dismantling of it, right? right? To say like, what am I going to do to make sure that these systems are not only privileging me and my family and the people that look like me and have the same life as me? How much does that, that translate into to practice for them? Like in terms of like, because you're doing this in a methods class. Yeah. And so like, I mean, we had the, that series with the Brian Brown book, you know, Science in the City. Um, sure. And so that talks about ways to, you know, it, from a method standpoint, like a, a pedagogy standpoint, how to make their, your classroom more inclusive and, and be really atten attentional, intentional with the, the students who are in, in the room to make it more accessible, to make the classroom and the science content more accessible and practices that can build to that. Mm -hmm. um, but when you so what's the shift for you what's the trend like so we're we do this un, unpacking our whiteness unpacking our privilege and background and so how does that you know transition into talking about practice and how what, what types of moves or kind of strategies or or maybe you know how they position themselves in a classroom with a possibly a group of white students right right yeah no i think that yeah so i mean uh, you can listen. You can check our our listening guide, and there's a. You can go back and listen to our <laughs> book book talk about Brian's book. So sure. I think fundamentally, Brian's point is that kids should be able to talk about things in their own words first before you layer on academic language, um, and that that is a core piece of how you engage in equitable practice. And I agree with that 100. percent I think the difference is what we're talking about is that doesn't engage with the structural nature of of whiteness and and oppression and and systems that have been set up to advantage some people over others so the question is how do you do that um and so we have two i, I would say we sort of have a two-pronged approach one comes from from um from the equity side and one comes from the practice-based teacher education side and we try to blend them you know going back to this idea of like it's not a separate thing so we have, you know, we have assignments that require them to to unpack their own understanding of their identity. We call the self-ethnography, right? So they have and they do multiple iterations of this with readings about different uh, marginalized groups so that they can they write it first um, really about race, because that, at least in the U.S., is is such a central one. 
but they rewrite it, you know, and this is talking about their own experiences, telling stories of like, when was the first time you realized you were a white person? Um, And then talking about gender, talking about ability. Um, So there's that that's very explicitly about like, you need to think about that. And then the other piece, which we've talked about on this podcast, I think was this this idea of like thinking about the observations and the teaching practice when they're in the in the schools with kids, are they noticing these um, instances where where um, inequity or oppression or or systematic difference is coming up, either because they're doing something or their teachers doing something or a kid you know, says something and the response to that or whatever it is, like starting to see what does this look like? What are the small things that happen in classrooms that either reinforce those notions or build those notions? Uh, and so I think, you know, and we were very explicit about that. Here's what we observed. And then how do you think that impacts the the equity in the classroom? So um, I think it's both and, right? I think that's why it's interesting to have it in a methods course. So do you get pushback from students? Like, cause I can imagine that there are some students who are just like, you know, especially, you know, in central Pennsylvania, especially the school like Penn state. I mean, there's still largely, you know, we have this, you know, Pennsylvania has, you know, political differences, like, like every state's Uh, we're, we're a very purple state. Right. right. And, and, but and they, it's very blue around the urban areas and very red at the middle. Or do I have, yeah. I have a, the colors background? I think I no, you have it right. right. Because yeah. well, James Carville famously called Pennsylvania the big red T, right? So it has oh, Philadelphia yeah. in one corner, Pittsburgh in the other, and then the north and the central so, part of Pennsylvania yeah. are largely. Yeah. So we both live in that, the red T, right? We both yeah. live in, in that where, you know, while, we are liberal leaning people or liberal people, depending on you know how we want to describe ourselves. Mm-hmm. We're largely in very conservative areas, and mm-hmm. so the students we work with are are have very conservative backgrounds, and they're getting a very different message in their their homes. They're getting a very different message in the types of media that their you know their families are consuming, and the types of things that are you know on the news in, in their houses. And then we're presenting something, and and I'll say, you know, there are pockets in our country right now where the words diversity, inclusion, equity, belonging those are those are like they're put under that umbrella of being woke, right? Yep. And like woke is like while. Um, not a compliment is not a compliment and 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 the in certain communities um where i mean it's just kind of like been um weaponized the, mm-hmm. the term has been weaponized as a as a way of against everything that is you know anything dei related if it's dei it's woke and you know yep. and we're gonna ban you know uh beer right that's the latest that's the latest one right well, like, i didn't hear i didn't hear there's a beer ban on the table oh that's... my gosh no they're not a ban but there's a you know mm. a group of people who are you know uh boycotting bud light right have you heard of that you don't know about this oh my well, i'm not really a bud light drinker so i'm that's not either but i'm you know uh, i'm i'm somebody who's like you know hip to the you know the public you know opinion type of thing uh-huh you know? well, so is yeah. this because they're too woke no. So what happened no. was they, uh, they got a a, a trans TikToker mm-hmm. was advertising. They formed an advertising partnership with a, a pretty famous TikToker, from what I understand, and they were on their TikTok promoting Bud Light, and the Bud Light community was just 
bananas. Or not what? having it. Not having it. Right. And so there were, you know, all these people who were dumping out Bud Light and shooting cans of Bud Light. And, you know, well, at least and, they bought them first, I guess. So there's or that. they had them. And then they just was like, I'm not drinking Maybe. this anymore. And it was like, you know, if you're going to have your woke agenda, like, mm. really, that's the. Yeah. You know, and and so, you know, it is while those of us who are working in this, like I have, uh, I'm the graduate coordinator for a program called Inclusive Practices. Mm-hmm. It's all around, you know, all of this stuff as a way of teaching. I am certain at some point, while I'm still going to be the coordinator of this program, that uh, that someone is going to be like, why is Millersville offering this? Like, it's going right. to be a thing, right? Yeah. I know, it, I feel like it's a pretty new program, but it's a it's a thing that someone's yep. going to get their burn their saddle over. Right. Yep. And at burn that point, saddle. yeah, it's going to happen. It is mm-hmm. going to happen. Yep. And I've already been like, you know, in my head playing with like, how, how does that play in the media? You know? And yeah, it's well, and it, no, but, and it escalates quickly. Right. It does because somebody picks up some sort of like way of looking at it. It's like, how'd they get there? How the heck did they get there? Which is, you know, I guess a a long way of circling back to how do your students react? Because like some of them could armor up because this is hard work. It's hard work to like confront our own identities and and recognize that, you know, yeah. And this is like, you know, we shouldn't make students feel bad for themselves, right? This is like why, you know, we, we, uh, there are schools that are banning anything that quote unquote critical race theory sure. because, you know, kids are going to feel bad about themselves. No, yeah. no. I mean, it doesn't necessarily. Well, mean yes. That, I, I think, yes, actually. Does, yeah. They, yeah. Uh, but I mean, the difference is that we've got a whole group of people that already are feeling badly all the time. And we're just like, well, who cares about their feeling badly? Now my kid is going to feel badly and I don't want that. That's what they're right. really objecting to is it is they're not objecting it's, to it's no kids one's feeling intent. bad. That, I think but it's some of their intent. You think it's Sometimes. their intent to make like to make people like I don't think no, no. the people I, who are working in diversity, equity, inclusion are not saying let's make white people feel bad about themselves. They're just not. I don't think that's no, the intent. I, that's not what I'm saying. Okay. Um but what I'm saying is that I mean, part of this process is involves feeling bad. I mean, right. it, because because bad stuff has been done. Like it's this isn't and and by us, right? And sometimes it's by us on a day to day basis, and sometimes it's just by the people from whom we inherited what we have or whatever. Like it's complicated, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think. To go all the way back to the question that you asked, which is like, how you know what what do we get pushback? And the answer is, of course, we get pushback because these these are hard questions. Even if everybody in the room is like, "Yeah, I'm all for this," it's still hard, difficult work that people can either implicitly or explicitly push back against. So yeah, we get pushback. Um, and and part of the challenge of this is opening enough space that students can learn to talk about it in a, in a way that's productive and isn't, um, isn't, as you say, about them making feel, making them feel bad, but making them understand that actually they have agency here. They they can do something about this. It's not just about, you know, again, it it goes back to what I was saying about Peggy McIntosh and the unpacking, like just saying you have privilege that 
often makes you feel bad. You're like, God, yeah, I do. Like, look at me. I've got all these identities that give me privilege. And and that makes you feel bad. But if that's where you stop, then you feel like, well, I guess that's it. I mean, I think part of this is saying, yeah, it's okay. You should feel bad. But if you want to feel better about it, the, you have to take some sort of action. You have to move things forward. You have to try and be an agent of change, not just sort of unpack your own privilege. Well, I, I think of the range of emotions that students can experience. Feeling bad is probably the 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 least um, actionable, right? Yeah. Be motivated. Be pissed off. Be you know. Yeah. Take on the agency of saying, you know what, my uh, I'm a teacher and I have a I have agency. I have power, and that means that I can make a difference. And I think that framing it from that standpoint, yes, thinking about like look around you, like. You know, what were the what were the ways that helped you get here and how can you make sure that other people have the ability to get here, you know, and and that that means that we have to you know be really, you know, mindful of the practices that we use in our classroom, you know. Yeah. I mean, how do we create environments that do the least harm possible to all the kids that are there? Right. I mean, that's a good goal as as human beings, not just in schools, but in life. Right. Like it's it's impossible to set up a system that does no harm. That's just not possible. Like but the question is, how is that harm distributed and how aware of the harm are we so that we can make conscious choices as best we can to minimize that harm for as many people as possible? I mean, I don't know, like utopia, the whole point of a utopian society is that it eliminates all sort of harm and difference and want, whatever. And that's just, you know, they call it a utopia for a reason. And we're not going to get there. But but I do think we can ask hard questions about how can we make things better? Um, And 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 I do think the first step in that is, frankly, feeling a little bit bad, Uh, because I think that's the least we can do as white people is feel a little bit bad about what's happened and how, how we, the situation we find ourselves in right now in terms of our social structures. So, but like you say, feeling bad is, is, is just, I mean, it's not a a good place. It does not, it's not an actionable emotion, right? Like what do you do 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 with, you know, feeling bad, you know, like to me, it's like, yeah, just get pissed off. Yeah, Yeah. Just get out there and, you know, get motivated, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we need, we need, right. We need generative energy around this, not right. not moping, right? Because moping, I mean, frankly, moping only ha- helps the person who's moping, right? Because yeah. everyone yeah. feels so sad. Be an like, agent well, of change. Yeah. Be an agent of change. Yeah. You know? And so, that, yeah. That, I think that's where, you know, how to situate this, where it's more, I don't know, hopefully going to resonate with people who may at first put up those roadblocks or put up those, you know, walls and say, you know, okay, I, I'm not going to feel bad or, you know, you can't make me feel bad because then you're all woke. But I do think, I mean, one of the focus areas I would say, and and I think JD started this, Jennifer continued it, um, is that part of what we're trying to do is create a space where white students have an opportunity to process this and re- really think through it and talk about it because you know again white people don't talk about race much at all or or you know disadvantage i mean people you know men don't talk about 
um, patriarchy a lot, right? Women talk about patriarchy more, right? Because it impacts them much more. So I think this idea of how do you create a an environment where students can talk because talking through it, just like with therapy or whatever, like lets you get past the bad feelings and start to think about how do I make change, right? So I do think that that is a space that we have to create is, is create, um, you know, these spaces where, where white students can talk about race in ways that help them understand it and understand the impact of it on their lives and on other people's lives in particular, hopefully their kids' lives. So they can really start to think about how can I, as a teacher make change in that? How can I think about doing differently so that at least I contribute to the system getting a little bit better? Um, and, and what does that look like? Yeah. Well, that's hard work. (laughs) Yeah. It's really hard work, Um, but it's important work. It's, it's critical for sure. You know, cause I mean, we cannot continue to let, um, really talented, gifted students, you know, not have access, right? And not right. let the practices be that happen in our classroom disadvantage students just based on their backgrounds or the color of their skin or whatever. Right. You know? Well, and, and if we if we really want to diversify our workforce and our teaching force and our uh, like the the first step in that is helping the white teachers that are currently teaching who are about to become teachers understand that system so they can make change. If we want more teachers of color, we got to set up systems that are going to bring those people through into higher education and feel like teaching is a job that they want to do. And that, that has to start with, with the teachers because they, you know, teachers make a huge difference in the outcomes of kids' lives. And so we, we have to get, get the current group of white teachers and the new group of white teachers to, to be those change agents. Um, cause otherwise we could be waiting literally generations before this is going to change. Yeah. One of the things that I know you, you just got back from NARS recently. And one of the things that we've been talking about off air, right. Is bringing in some folks who are, you know, working in different spaces to be. And so down the road, we're going to have some guests. And I think trying to get somebody who's, you know, who works like deeply in this area, I think would be really, really helpful. Um, because certainly, I mean, you're working in it, you know, I'm indirectly working in it, um, you know, with our, you know, the graduate program we have, and also with the, um, work I do with the teacher, the teachers, uh, teacher candidates I have in my classroom, but this isn't my work. And, and so getting some folks in here that would be, you know, more directly, you know, connected to this, I mean, it's all of our scholars. Yeah. Scholars. That's what I'm saying. It's all of our work, right? It's, it's, if you're a teacher educator someplace or you're in science education or whatever, if you're an educator, this is your work, whether you, you know, recognize it or not. Um, But I think having somebody who's, you know, a little bit closer to the scholarship of this, I think would be really helpful. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, like you say, this is not my scholarship. It's, it's practice. I, I, you I say practice? practice it. I said practice. It's part of my practice, and it's an increasing part of my scholarly understanding of the work. Yeah. But it's certainly not a scholarship, uh, an area of scholarship for me. Like it is, again, my students JD and Jennifer. This, both of them have different ways of approaching this issue, but they're both really deeply uh, interested in it and have much deeper scholarly understandings of it than I do. Yeah, that's cool. So.
but it's nice to have students around like that. Yeah. You could bring them on. Yeah. Friends of the show. Yeah. It'd be interesting. I mean, you know, the fast, one of the fascinating things about the two of them is JD's white and and Jennifer's black. um, And they both taught the same course um, one year apart. And so we, we have a sense of how different that class is Mm -hmm. when there's a white male teacher versus a black female teacher. Um, And of course it is a lot different. So um, especially when there's a lot of talk about race and gender and yeah. Anyway, yes, it would be it would be cool to have them on and have them talk a little bit about their experience. Can't you? You could strong arm them into coming, right? You could be like probably, probably, probably. Yeah, yeah, probably. I mean, JD's graduated and off at you know a faculty job, so you know, I don't know. I've let I I can't strong arm him as much. Yeah. I mean, well, maybe. I mean, you know, I I like to think of them like I did with you, more like friends and colleagues rather than you know, a hierarchy of power. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, again, it's, it's there. I don't get to pretend it's not, but, um, but I do my best to, to flatten that hierarchy. Sure. All right. Anyway. So you got a joy. Oh, I, I think I, I've, I've quite a few joys. Cause well, it's, it's been, been so, weeks. It has been weeks. So, but I'm going to land on this. Okay? okay. I'm, I'm, late to the show really late to the show 11 seasons too late for the show <laughs> all right uh but a friend of mine recommended it and 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 tanya and i my wife and i sat down and watched uh shameless oh yeah okay. have you ever have you ever seen this i've seen some episodes of it my my children have watched i think multiple seasons maybe all i don't know but I well there's not. 11 seasons of it so we're yeah. talking like 130 episodes or something. So we're like almost done with season one. Um, This is on Showtime way back in the day. Um, And wow. I I think um, so one, it uh, it has the actor who was in the bear. So I love that harm. The guy who's in the, uh, and it's set in Chicago, just like the the bear was. Um, So I was like kind of drawn to it, but then someone who, who I find really funny, a friend of mine who I find really funny said, this is, my favorite show ever i'm like oh well it's got to come in there's got to be a certain dna there that uh, i'm going to appreciate and so i think the pitch for the show because this came right out like like breaking bad time right after like you know dawn draper mad men like all of those when that the anti-hero was you know really like in vogue you know Mm -hmm. so yeah the 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 likable Tony Soprano, who's a bad guy, but he's completely right. likable, right? Yeah. And I think the pitch was, what if we had an entire family of antiheroes? Like yeah. a dad, a mom, all of the kids, everybody was an antihero, and they all live in the same house. Yeah. Because they're all like, they're they're bad humans. They're, they're bad. Yeah, they're, they're bad, bad people. <laughs> they're bad yeah. humans, yeah. but they're likable people, right? They're like yeah. complex and they do really bad things, right? right? They steal from people. They make all sorts of bad decisions because they're, you know, growing up in abject poverty because the the father is an alcoholic and yeah. and 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 is really absent most of the time. And these kids are raising themselves and yeah. and it, it while it sounds like depressing and sometimes it really is, it is also really funny it's yeah. like the darkest of dark comedy that you could possibly imagine yeah um, well yeah i was gonna say there's one more on the continuum that might be further down the darkness well which is always sunny in philadelphia which oh, 
Yes. Which, which they are bad people. And I don't even know if they're likable. I think right. <laughs> you really like they're terrible people. But yeah. anyway, sorry. Yeah. No, it's, but it's that same. Like imagine yeah. that with a little bit more like drama, maybe a, you know, a little longer form, but, but that is right in the DNA of that, yeah. you know, where you're just like, did they really just do that? Yes. You know? Yeah. It's like, I mean, it feels like shameless is like slightly less intentional right like they do bad stuff but it's not all they're not always trying to do bad stuff sometimes right. they're trying to do the right thing or sort of the right thing well they're doing the right thing work. in the moment like they're doing the right thing in the moment because they're right. just trying to get through the day right? right like they're like hey our water heater broke let's look at the obituaries to see who died <laughs> so that we can go steal a, a water heater from somebody's from house. their house yeah right and it's just like oh my gosh you know that's a that's a horrible decision yeah you know but they're just trying to get through the day because they haven't yeah. they don't have a water heater and there's like seven people living in this house yeah wow it is wow. it is yes as entertainment goes it is yeah it's complex <laughs> complex <laughs> yeah all right well i have a much simpler uh joy but uh but yeah, I mean, one that I think I don't I don't get to enjoy as much as you do, which is live music. So um, oh, yeah. my daughter had her birthday and we went to a show together here at the State Theater, which I love the State Theater in State College. It's a it's a beautiful venue. And they have, you know, they don't have as much as I would like. And this is not a criticism of them. I think it's probably just hard to book people through here, you know, Um but when they do, they often have some pretty spectacular folks. Um, I saw, I think I've mentioned this, but I saw Brandy Carlisle there back when she was not Brandy Carlisle, right? Back when she was just that's cool, Brandy Carlisle. Um, but this weekend, I saw a, a pair of guys, uh, Langhorn Slim, who's a Pennsylvania native from Langhorn, Pennsylvania, and John Craigie. Um, who's a California guy, um, but they're folk, they're singer songwriters, folk, folky blues. I don't know exactly what, where you'd put them, but, um, but for me, John Craigie was the winner of the pair. I really enjoyed his set and he was funny um, in between. He did a lot of talk. Almost, he was almost a stand up comedian in between songs. He was so good. And, and his songs were fantastic. And, uh, and I, one of the things I found out after we, we found out about this show and started digging around about him is he's been doing this thing called, um, well, he started with Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band, which is a Beatles album. And he does live shows where he just reinterprets and plays the whole album from beginning to end. Um, all acoustic, just him. Um, That's a cool and he's, concept. he's been working his way through the Beatles catalog. So, um, so he's done, uh, that one. And I think the white album and Abbey road are the three that he's done so far, maybe revolver. I don't know. But anyway, anyway, that's a cool thing, but he also writes his own music and, um, and he's, yeah, he's great. So it was a great show. Really, really enjoyed it. Um, and so I'm a, I'm a big Craigie fan now. I don't know what that Craig head, I don't know what that means, but, um, whatever it is, uh, John Craigie, check him out. He's, uh, he's got, he's been recording music since, 2012 or something so he's been around for a while maybe probably before that but like uh, if you go into you know itunes music or spotify or something you can find albums all the way back to at least 2012 that's cool i'll have to check yeah. it out yeah i'm a big fan of live music and, uh... <sighs> yeah I, every time i go i'm like Man, i should be really doing this more but uh but yeah it was it was a lot of fun 
Yeah. I I I had a really epic show last week. I went to see uh the Mountain Goats. Oh, nice. And yeah, it that's... was awesome. It yeah, was like that, probably a, a top ten show of yeah. my life where these these guys were yeah. Awesome, You're skipping right? ahead. That could you could have saved that for next uh, week. I got I got so much joy in my life, brother. <laughs> I'm just gonna spread it. I, uh, you get a bonus one this time. Bonus to it for all of you out there. <laughs> it's Jameless and the Mountain Goats. Boom boom. Yeah, that's how I roll. That's how I roll. All right. Well, hey, we'll catch you next time. In between. See you then. Bye now.